to the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. I could pretty easily tell a story about kids in the back seat saying, Are we there yet? But I don't think anybody needs to imagine what the feeling of waiting is like after this year. I think we all know that feeling of anticipation for something to be over, something new to come. And I imagine you all have been asking the same question. Are we there yet? When will this year be over? When will it go back to the way it was? How long until I can see people again? You know, everyone is in the same boat, and maybe that helps a little bit. We saw last Sunday that the saints have been crying out, How long, O Lord, for all the ages? Psalm 13 probably describes the desires of a waiting heart in more direct and desperate 
terms than any other psalm. It's short. We don't know much, if anything, about what's going on in it, um, what's going on around David as he pleads in that psalm. But we can certainly tell that he gets it. He understands what it's like to be stuck without hope around him and only able to cry out to God, barely able to form words. And Psalm 40 is also a psalm of waiting. David is waiting for God to deliver him in the middle of an unknown trial. But what we get in this psalm is a bit more of how David waited for God. How he pled and how he hoped and what to do after the hoped-for deliverance comes. Pastor Jason Meyer has even said uh, that in Psalm 40, we have an entire theology of waiting. And I think especially as we come to the end of 2020, the calendar year, although that doesn't guarantee anything about the end of this year's trials, we desperately need to understand how to wait well. Because the end of all of these problems that have really revealed themselves more palpably this year is not going to come when the clock strikes midnight. Our wait will only be over when Jesus Christ returns again. And so as we remember his first advent, let's also look with anticipation for his return. Now look with me at David's Psalm 40. Help us learn how to wait and look with that anticipation. There's a structure to this psalm that's typical to Hebrew poetry. We begin at the bottom of a mountain, and we ascend toward the summit in the middle of the psalm, and in the second half we make our descent down the other side of the mountain. And what that means basically is As we get towards the middle, we kind of reach a climax that comes down off of that as we go through. And all the while, David is taking us, he's refocusing his perspective. He starts looking backwards, then he looks upwards, inwards, outwards, around, and forwards. And don't worry, I'm going through each perspective, so don't feel like you needed to get all of those perfectly in the list. He starts with backwards. In the first three verses, David is reminding himself of how the Lord delivered him in the past. I waited patiently. Literally, it's waiting I waited. The message paraphrase has it like this. I waited and waited and waited. It's emphatic waiting. David waited urgently. I waited. I was holding my breath for God to do something, and he did not answer me, so I kept waiting. And you know what that's like. God doesn't seem to answer when you call. You're like David did, neck deep in this slew of quicksand, You think, I don't know how much longer I can do this. But, then as David says, he inclined to me. I didn't think God was paying any attention to me anymore. 
But he turned and he looked at me. And he heard my cry. And now I'm not up to my neck in that miry bog. Whether this miry bog was outside suffering or sickness or David's own sin, we do not know. But what we do know is God delivered him. And he says, now I'm standing on solid ground. He put a new song in my mouth. Some of you really know this experience. God's deliverance has been so real and powerful that you just have to sing. You can't keep it to yourself. You want everyone to know this God who delivers so wonderfully. And you want them to trust him too. From this, in verses 4 and 5, David begins to look upwards. He speaks of the blessings of the man who trusts in the Lord. And in verse 5, you can see he even changes from talking about God to talking directly to God. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. Who is like God who works for those who wait for him? No one, no one does this but you, Lord. David is saying, I want to count all the good that you have done for me, my God, but there's so much more than I can even say. There's a hymn, The Love of God. I think the lines really capture it well. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stock on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. There's more than I can tell. And next, David looks inwards at the state of his own heart in verses 6 through 8. He knows it's not empty sacrifices that God wants. It's an open ear that listens and obeys. 1 Samuel 15. Samuel, in condemning Saul, taking the kingdom away from him, eventually to be given to David, says to Saul, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. What does God want? For you to have a heart that says, I delight to do your will. But we'll come back to this section later. Because the New Testament quotes it as a prophecy of Jesus. For now, let's look with David outwards. Because the heart that says, I delight to do your will, looks outwards to those around him. That heart delights when others hear of his glory and praise him too. I have not restrained my lips. I have not hidden your deliverance. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. 
And David even starts to preach, and he preaches to God. He's so excited. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever, that is, will constantly, without fail, preserve me. And where is David getting this from? Is he thinking, well, I'm the great King David, the Lord has anointed me, and so I know this and this and this. God won't abandon me, he promised. No. He's preaching God's own words back to him. You'll remember a few weeks ago, Caleb was preaching out of the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and we looked at Exodus 34, where we see the glory of the Lord shown to Moses. It says, The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those words, steadfast love and faithfulness, are the exact same Hebrew words in this psalm. That's when God was declaring his name. David is taking that, that moment of revelation of God's name, the, the greatest revelation of God's glory until Jesus Christ were to come. And he's using that as his way of worshiping and praising God, as his rock-solid trust that this is who God is. And from this place of high praise to God, David now looks around himself. And guess what? The trouble is still there. Evils are surrounding him. His own sins threaten to sink him down to death right now. There's more troubles, more sins than the hairs of his head. Because my heart fails me. Literally, he says, my heart has forsaken me. I think you know what this is like, too. I know God loves me, but the suffering is back. The enemy is still at the gates. There isn't even an ounce of hope left in the deepest part of your heart. And so David does all that he can do when everything is hopeless. He calls on God who has delivered him so many times before. And he calls on God by name. Not just by a title, but by the name that God proclaimed to Moses, Yahweh, his personal covenant name. He says, be pleased, O Yahweh, to deliver me. O Yahweh. Make haste to help me. Those people who seek my life, put them to shame. Those who rejoice at my hurt, turn them back in dishonor. Make my mockers ashamed and appalled when you deliver me from them. David can do this from the renewed pit of despair. Because he's not stuck looking around at his enemies and his circumstances and his sins. 
He's not dwelling on the past. He's not even dwelling in the present. He's looking forward to what God has promised he will do. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is Yahweh. He doesn't sugarcoat his problems. He doesn't hope for better next time, next week, next year. He doesn't hope that he will become better equipped to handle his problems. He doesn't hope that the people around him will be better. He says, as for me, I am poor and needy. Are you comfortable thinking of yourself this way? I confess to you that I am not. (laughs) Here, look at me. This is what I have to offer the world. This is me being a productive citizen. I am poor and needy. Everyone, I am poor and needy. I think our automatic reaction against this is why we don't tell each other about how God has delivered us. We don't want to admit that we're poor and needy. We don't want to say it for others to hear. I feel weird just doing what I just did. So we go along under our own steam and our own strength, and we have nothing to praise God for, because that would reveal our great poverty. The poor in spirit are the blessed ones. We agree, we believe that, right? But, but we're better than that. Don't we think so? Let's turn our attention back to verses 6 through 8, where David is looking inwards. Because the author of the book of Hebrews picks up these verses. David knew that the sacrifices themselves did not have any power. It wasn't because he killed a lamb that God looked down on him in favor. He knew God was gracious to him because of who God was, not because of who he was and what he did. And no amount of animal sacrifices could make him right with God. God had to do that himself. But what David understood only in part, we have in full glory shown to us. Hebrews 10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. When did Jesus say those words, Behold, I have come to do your will? And certainly throughout his whole life of obedience to the law, and even in coming to be born of the virgin's womb. But the greatest declaration of obedience to God's will came in Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Can Jesus say, My soul is very sorrowful, even unto death? And we cannot admit our natural need? How great would it be if we were more like David and Jesus here at Buffalo City Church? I said at the beginning that going through this psalm was like going up a mountain and down the other side. Well, let's return to the peak one more time. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Who's this great congregation that David hasn't concealed these things from? For him, it would be the people of God gathered in worship at the tabernacle. For you, for us, it's the members here, people here at this church. Here's the action point of this psalm. Don't get me wrong, there are many good things we can learn about how to wait with hope from this psalm. And I would sum them up in this statement. Don't look at your circumstances, but reflect on God's past deliverance and future promises. But there's one thing I want you to do. I say, I, David, God, Jesus Christ, because he wrote Psalm 40, wants you to do. Forget everything else, if you like, but tell the people here how God has delivered you. And I don't just mean your testimony or your conversion experience. Tell us how God has kept you from total despair when your mother died, when your child was stillborn. When your spouse abandoned you. When you were laid off work and didn't know how you could feed your kids. When you were told you have cancer. Tell us how God was enough, even then. Tell us how you can say with the Apostle Paul in Philippians, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound 
In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is what Psalm 40 is all about. This is what all the Psalms, all 150 of them are about. Saying to the people of God, to everyone around you, I'm poor and needy, but God takes thought of me. I'm up to my neck in sins, but Jesus carried me out of the grave. All I want to do is deny him and disobey him and forget him, but his spirit is within me, keeping me. Oh, often I forget him. Me, John Bumgartner, forgets him. How I daily live as if he were not God. I'm poor and needy, and I take no thought of him. He takes thought of me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or trial or famine or danger or nakedness or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, through him who takes thought of poor and needy us. I am sure that neither death nor life nor things present nor things to come nor angels nor rulers nor height nor depth nor powers nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are poor and needy. He takes thought of us. Be those kinds of people this week. And forever. Our praises in heaven is not going to be, Oh Lord, we have done so great after you helped us. Praise in heaven is worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. You ransomed people for God, not us. They're poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of us. Let us pray.